0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And welcome to October. That's right. Uh, October for us is a, just a full month of Halloween-flavored, spooky, creepy, monstrous content uh, you know, we, we put out monstrous and occasionally horror-themed content uh, at other points during the year, but we really try and make sure that October is just jam-packed. We take our, our – our, we take this one holiday very seriously anyway.
1: It's monster science all month. That's right. And so today, Robert, you wanted to talk about horror movies and masks.
0: Yeah, I kind of – I just kept thinking about this recently and I don't think there was one particular movie uh, uh, that, uh, that that inspired it uh, because I, you know, obviously I've been watching slasher movies for a large portion of my life. I imagine you have as well. and I And I don't imagine we have to explain this particular trope to anyone out there. You don't have to have seen a single slasher film to know it by heart. A masked murderer is on the prowl. And perhaps by the end of the film, you'll either discover the killer's identity or the nature of the disfiguration that forces them to wear that mask.
1: Yeah, you discover it through this this unmasking that tends to happen at the end of the movie. And I think it's interesting that the unmasking or face reveal trope happens in horror movies. Now, okay – I'll frame it in two ways. One way is that it happens in horror movies that are also mysteries. Yes. This makes total sense to me. Imagine a slasher movie like the Scream movies where it turns out at the end of every movie that the killer is a character known to you and you've discovered, ah, it was this person all along. And the mask revealed, the face – you know, the mask gets pulled off. The face reveal tells you who it was. It conveys information. Yeah, this is the Scooby-Doo trope. Exactly. It was old man grizzle bums all along. (laughs) But then there are tons of movies with masked killers that have unmasking moments. But the killer's mask is removed and it is not – it's not a mystery. It's not a character. Uh, Like there's Halloween and the Friday the 13th sequels. In movies like this, you already know who the killer is or the killer is not a previously known character. And in these cases – I always wonder what purpose does the face reveal serve? It still tends to happen at the climax of the movie as if like this is all – what it's all been leading up to. There's the face. But it's not like it reveals anything about who it was. It's just like, well, that's what his face looks like.
0: Yeah. I mean, on one level, it's just kind of like the Fangoria magazine, like gore hound uh, ethos, right? You know, it's like you just you're you're building up to that point where you're seeing all this grisly stuff, but you want to reach like peak uh, peak grotesque. And that's where it's going to occur when that mask is pulled off. I guess so. Uh, So it's this is, of course, all just a very well-worn trope, but a trope that we keep utilizing in our our horror fiction because let's face it, it, it works. It's fun. And I realize that it can can be a little bit problematic when we start to dissect our love for pretend murder films, which essentially that's what we're talking about, (laughs) pretend murder movies. And I just want to warn people –
1: at the top of this episode, that while we often talk about horror movies, monsters, ghosts, and so forth, we don't usually talk about real-world serial killers and stuff, which can arguably, at least to me, be a more disturbing subject matter. And so as a point of illustration of our topic today, we will be discussing a few real murderers from history. Just a fair warning if that sort of thing is likely to bother you. You know, I think about the difference between loving fictional horror and loving, say, true crime, like th- this is a big difference for me. I-, I love monsters and murder mystery horror and all that, but I do not really enjoy true crime at all. And I often find it unpleasant. I mean, I can think of a few examples. like I like the movie Zodiac. Oh, yeah, that's great. And I love the the Charles Manson season of the podcast, You Must Remember This. Have you ever listened to
0: that? Um, I have – I think I've listened to a few episodes. Yeah, it's just really good. But I have, I have not listened to the Charles Manson episodes.
1: Well, if you haven't checked it out, here's a podcast recommendation. Uh, you Must Remember This with Karina Longworth is about Hollywood history and I really enjoy it. Uh, but in general – I really prefer my exposure to violence and murder to be fictional. And of course, I know people who are exactly the other way around, right? I know you probably do too, Robert. Like, they can't stomach even the mildest of monster movies, but they gobble up nonfiction crime books and podcasts about the most horrible kinds of real-life murder and mayhem, uh, which to me is more likely to make me feel just kind of depressed.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I do know individuals who fall into either category. I know individuals who like both. I mean, there are there are people who just really love both horror and true crime, and will and will will, will take it, you know, all in however they can they can get it. Um, you know, for my own part, I, I'm not as much into true crime right now, but I certainly went through a, a period of time uh, in college, in particular, where I was just like consuming everything i could get at the time and there weren't as many options especially online we didn't have true crime podcasts back then back then but you know i was watching uh you know any kind of forensic documentary i could get my hands on i was uh i I was visiting some of the 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 early true crime websites and, uh, and and reading the um Know some of those uh, those de- those big thick detective manuals about homicide investigation.
1: Now, one thing that we can come back to in a minute is: I bet when you were going through this true crime phase, you may have been surprised
0: to not encounter
1: much use of the mask in in real life murder.
0: Exactly, and that's that's really the 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 question that uh, that kind of led to this episode was just uh, uh, the question and, and the realization that. When you look, at, you look at all of these masked psychopathic individuals in our fiction and then you, you look to real life um, serial murders and, and true crime and you really don't see that many masks. You do see a few notable, uh, notable uh, exceptions which we will discuss here. But for the most part, uh, the, the killer's mask seems to be an obsession of fiction uh, that is not as present in real life crime,
1: and we will certainly explore some potential reasons for that later on in the episode.
0: Now, I do want to mention one thing here. We we we've been talking about true crime and uh, and horror fiction. Uh, kind of as if they are just two completely separate kingdoms. Uh, of course, these kingdoms border each other and actually overlap. Uh, it, it becomes impossible to to really uh, keep one away from the other. You have horror movies that are very much inspired by real-life murders, uh, real-life crime. And then, uh, unfortunately, we also have The Reverse, which we'll discuss just briefly as well, where you have real-life crime that is inspired by horror fiction.
1: Now, if we stick to fictional horror for a bit, you can think of some obvious reasons that it might make sense for a villain to wear a mask, right?
0: Yeah. yeah. Let's roll through some of the just obvious reasons. Uh, first of all, it's the Scooby-Doo factor creates a sense of mystery. Who or what is underneath that mask? I got to know.
1: It makes a lot more sense for this to be the case in movies where there is actually a known character whose identity is being concealed.
0: Right. Uh, when i was in in high school uh, a friend of mine collected uh, these larger scale gi joe figures mm-hmm. not the like old school ones but kind of like a, a you know a new school version that was out and he had one of destro uh and apparently the mask would come off but he refused to take the the, the doll out of the box which always just i was like how can you do that don't you you've got to know right you got to know what destro's face looks like underneath that mask on this doll uh huh and I never found out. So uh, – and to my knowledge, he never opened the box. But there is – there's this, this – even when we know that it's not vital to like the true identity of the character, there is something about the identity of the character wrapped up in whatever is being hidden from us. What do you think you're going to learn by seeing his face? I don't know. It's kind of it's, – it's almost something that's not put into words. I mean it might be something akin to this. Like we are so dependent upon uh, – the human face to understand intention and motivation i mean the, the the face is a communications array, and if that and if the other individual 's face is hidden from us, true communication cannot take place so I, I feel like part of the unmasking um, psychology is based in that like like we 're having a one sided facial conversation here, yeah, and you must remove that mask for this. For this understanding to be true.
1: Well, in general, to be uncovered is to be vulnerable and to Mm -hmm. be covered is to be guarded in a way. Right.
0: Now, uh, another advantage to having a, a mass killer in your fiction is, of course, it sets up that potential big reveal we've been talking about, right? What's the identity of the killer? What's the, what's the monster's face look like? You're going to build anticipation, especially if that is the trope, especially if that is what is expected. You go into that uh, Friday the 13th movie knowing that there's going to be a moment where you get to see Jason Voorhees' face.
1: There are also some very practical Filmmaking concerns you could take into account here, right?
0: Oh yeah, because it's generally cheaper uh, to just put a mask uh, on your character than to do all of that crazy makeup uh, special effects. You know, especially if you're using a generic mask like a hockey mask or a sack or a gas mask or some of William kind Shatner of, mask, a, spray exactly. painted white. Yeah. yeah, just something you find. And uh, and you, you might say, well, well, heck, there's some really impressive, like Tom Savini. Uh, uh, Makeup effects that are utilized to create Jason in many of those films, right? When the unmasking does occur, but. If you think, if, think of it this way, it's like that's a, it's a costly um, makeup effect to roll out. Mm-hmm. And you can't just you know, film, put, put it on once. If you're filming it multiple times, you're going to have to uh, put it on multiple times. It's going to cost time and money. But if you have him just wear a hockey mask for most of the time, then that just makes filming easier. And if you can't afford that fancy makeup at all to begin with – then there you go that's <laughs> that's the easiest step to take
1: uh putting a mask on i would say also requires less of your actor
0: that's right you don't have to uh, really worry as much about your 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 the acting abilities of the actor or you don't have to depend on them having a a particular uh you know unique face so i'm thinking on one hand you don't have to have christopher lee who uh, Who was uh, you know an accomplished uh, uh, horror actor, mm-hmm. and you don't also don't have to worry about do I have a like a, a Robert zadar, somebody who maybe you know arguably is was not as great an actor as Christopher Lee, but definitely had a, a very interesting face mm-hmm. You don't have to have either of those if you just have a mask you can throw over the individual. No, you can basically just cast your stunt coordinator. Exactly, which I believe is, is generally what you see in some of these cases. <laughs> you just have the stunt player or just somebody with a large frame perhaps mm-hmm. uh, playing the character. Uh, and then, hey, you can use as many actors as you actually need. You can recast it every movie. You don't have to worry about getting into into you know deep contract negotiations with your uh, with your slasher character. It's also great branding, great for Halloween costumes. Oh, I see. So that's the I mean that's the reason that Jason Voorhees so easily pops up on every street uh, during Halloween, or certainly at every uh, haunted attraction. Um, you know any haunted house, commercial haunted house you might go to, there will inevitably be somebody in a hockey mask. And then finally, it leaves lots of room for the creepy and the uncanny. And this, I think, gets into the deeper history of of the the use of masks in in human uh, civilization and various cultures. Uh, the idea that the mask is a, a an ancient uh, performative um, tool that allows an individual to become something else
1: yeah and we see this in everything from drama to religious ceremonies yeah um so what robert what are some of your favorite horror movie masks
0: well i have to say i've always been very partial to leatherface from the texas chainsaw massacre okay especially the, the first film uh but but i i say i love one and two and i and i And I really like, I like three and four as well. I'll go as high as three and four. (laughs) You do, huh? Yeah. I mean, you got, uh, you know, Matthew McConaughey. I mean, four is a bit wackadoodle, but you still have McConaughey in there doing his thing. I haven't, what's the one with the aliens? Um, Ooh, I don't know about the, there's Illuminati in uh, the fourth one. Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. I I don't think we've been blessed with an alien. a uh, 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 plot in a uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yet, part three though had uh, uh, Viggo Morrison in it. Uh, so oh, Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that was worthwhile. Three was pretty good. Yeah. But, uh, but you're into the mask. Right. Yeah, the mask is the, 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 the main factor here that we're talking about here today. Uh, you know, he had this mask that was stitched together uh, from, uh, from pieces of, uh, of Leatherface's victims or perhaps uh, the, the bodies that the, 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 the chainsaw family is stealing out of the cemeteries. Um, and in that first film especially, you never see what is underneath it. You might wonder about it, but it's there's no reveal or anything. Uh, Eventually, Hollywood couldn't resist, and they depicted uh, Leatherface unmasked in 2003. That's in the remake, yeah, yeah, and uh, the Michael Bay remake, yeah, and that was fun enough, you know, but it wasn't for me. It wasn't as satisfying as the original film by uh, by any means. I I always like the implication that. That it didn't matter. Like you, you, you didn't. There wasn't. It wasn't set up for an unmasking. Like maybe there wasn't even an identity under there. You know, it's mm-hmm. like his identity was the mask made out of his crimes. Hmm. Now an, another favorite of mine, uh, and I understand this is one of your favorites as well, Doctor Philip K. Decker's Button Mask and Clive Barker's Nightbreed.
1: Oh, this one is so good. This is probably this might be my favorite horror movie killer mask. Uh, so it is worn by.
0: David Cronenberg. Or at least David Cronenberg plays the character that's wearing it. I don't know if that's actually him in all the scenes. Oh, yeah. Because it seems like for, this is another case of like Cronenberg's great, but we really can't have him on set all the time <laughs> or like doing all these stunts. So let's just have the stunt guy play him and then whenever he pulls it off, we'll get, uh, we'll get Dave on, on, set, if you on haven't, set.
1: If you haven't seen it, it's basically a sock over the head with buttons for eyes and a zipper mouth.
0: But impeccably designed, like it's yeah. a highly stylized mask that actually makes no sense. And I didn't even really think about this till yesterday. How did you see How it? did he see out of it? It's <laughs> almost like he didn't see. Like when he became the killer, he was like using some sort of like, uh, you know, Clive Barker's yeah. Sixth Sense, you know, like he saw through – murder or something it's a very creepy
1: mask especially knowing that the person under it is supposed to be a soft-spoken floppy-haired david cronenberg Mm -hmm. Uh, just imagining how that mask over the top of his head is pressing his hair down (laughs) is one of the the great sources of horror in that movie Uh, cronenberg of course is usually known as a horror director this movie makes me think he should take more acting roles he is so unsettling in it he was he was so good uh another one of my favorite horror movie masks is not worn by like a movie killer but in the 1973 The Wicker Man which is one oh, of my yeah. favorite horror movies. Uh it's not explicitly a single killer with a mask but the masks that the villagers wear for the celebration of their pagan religion are just awesome. There's like rabbits and fish and bear masks. Uh it's it's all there and I keep thinking one of these days I'm going to have a really good Wicker Man party on May Day or something. <laughs>
0: Well, that really sets expectations very high for whatever you're going to burn in your backyard. <laughs> but the,
1: uh, but the, the masks are great here because they highlight the, the continuity between horror movie masks and the traditional use of masks in religious ceremonies. They just make that connection explicit.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's an explicit treatment of like uh, you know, pagan, pagan practices and pagan belief systems in that movie. Uh, yeah, an excellent film. And again you're talking about the original not the the remake.
1: Not not the one with the not the bees. Yes. <laughs> Though that one's worth watching for different reasons.
0: <laughs> now there are a lot of films where the the masks uh that the slasher wears are unimpressive or they're trying a bit too hard. Mm-hmm. Um and in some of these cases I haven't I have admittedly not given the film a proper shake. Like I know there was that uh that groundhog day slasher movie that came out in the last year. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Um I th- can't remember the name of the film offhand, uh, but the, the character wears like a baby mask. So okay. It's, so it's like this kind of goofy looking baby mask, but then it's creepy because he's wearing the baby mask. Oh, that reminds me of one of the
1: creepiest masks in movies, which is not a horror movie, but in Terry Gilliam's Brazil, yes. the baby mask. that yeah, is worn by uh, the interrogator, yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, Michael Palin. It's Michael Palin's
0: character in that. But yeah. yeah, he is he is acting as an interrogator and uh, torturing our hero. Uh so I guess it is kind of a horror-ish scene, and that that is a terrible mask. Right. Terrifying indeed. But uh you know, so sometimes masks I feel like are they trying a little bit too hard. Uh, uh I was I was never a big fan of the masks that are or the mask or masks that are utilized in the saw films. Yeah. Because he he seems to have just a lot of gimmicks. He has too many gimmicks. You know, he has the traps, he has a, like a theatrical robe he wears, there's a pig mask, there's also the creepy puppet. I, a lot of stuff.
1: I'm just biased against the Saw movies in general. I, <laughs> I don't get down with the whole torture thing.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I will say, though, that, uh, again, I've only seen, like, the first one. And I did read that they later established that there's some sort of connection between the pig masks and the Chinese Zodiac. So, <laughs> okay. uh, so kudos for, like, somehow working that in. I was not aware of that angle. It doesn't really tempt me to watch the films though. (laughs) Well, you know, there are are a number of of slasher films where they they did just like pick out a a mask, an existing mask. Like it's the uh – like it's a, a like a, a coal miner's mask, right? Or mm. it's a gas mask or something—something something that it, that it, that already exists. Let's claim it and make it part of our slasher movie motif,
1: right? So you've got uh, Jason in the Friday the Thirteenth mm-hmm. movies just wears a hockey mask. Uh, the in My Bloody Valentine is just sort of like a, a miner's gas mask, right?
0: That's a that's a classic of the genre. Kind of a, that's an early yeah. slasher film.
1: And then of course, just like grabbing a mask off the racks at the Halloween store.
0: Yeah, the the Scream movies classic example of that the ghost face mask yeah Yeah. Uh, i do have this i have wondered about this and i I looked around i couldn't find an example of anybody doing this but why do we not have any horror movies where the slasher wears a greek tragedy mask because so many of these are just mega creepy looking if i recall correctly there is a scene
1: in scream 2 that uses the greek tragic chorus masks but I think maybe it's that the killer is just in the normal ghost face mask from the Scream movies and is blending in among a crowd of Greek masks. Oh, uh, OK. They're like trying to do a murder during a play rehearsal. <laughs> it's not huh. a very smart strategy.
0: Well, as far as I know, there, I think there's a, there's a huge um, area of opportunity here. You know, not so much for ghost face killer. I guess this would be like Greek face killer. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will uh, – we'll get in more to the, the, the real-life killers and why we don't really see uh, that many masks utilized in their crimes. All right, we're back.
1: All right, so we've been discussing how masks are extremely common in horror movies, horror stories about fictional killers. But this doesn't appear to reflect reality so much.
0: Yeah, when you start looking around for examples of, of especially serial murderers who used a mask during the commission of their crimes, you do not find that many uh, cases. And we looked around uh, and I, we even employed um, the, uh, the, the true crime expertise of our, uh, of our colleague uh, Scott Benjamin on this as well. Scott knows what's up. Yeah, and, uh, and and he helped us with a few of these examples that, that we'll that we'll mention here. But uh, but but let's lay some ground rules here. So we're we're going to be looking for actual masks, serial killers or spree killers, uh, and it, and we're we're discounting any kind of mask that was used purely as a disguise, like a a, a fake beard, false hair, etc. Um, and also we have we're going to require that the mask be used during the commission of the crime itself. Uh, because that's what we see in these slasher movies, right? It's not that Jason goes home afterwards and wears the hockey mask in his den. It's not that, uh, you know, it's not that he's wearing the hockey mask to blend in during a hockey game. He is using it uh, for some varied effect during the crime itself. Uh-huh. The most notable example, and I imagine this is the one that a lot of you are thinking of, is uh, the Zodiac Killer.
1: Now, this was not the case during all of the Zodiac killer's crimes, right? Just some of them.
0: Right. Uh, Now, to remind everybody who we're talking about, this was the the Northern California serial killer who was active during the 60s and 70s. Identity, uh, as of this recording, still unknown. But uh, specifically, the September 27th, 1969 attack uh, at Lake uh, Berryessa, he wore a black executioner-type hood with clip-on sunglasses, uh, over the eye holes and a zodiac uh symbol branded bib uh kind of an awkward sounding mask really and we and if you you look online, you can see illustrations of this. It does look a little bit goofy, a little bit awkward uh but also frightening, and that seems to have probably been the the effect uh one of the effects that he was going after uh-huh. uh, It seems like he might have been trying this out, experimenting with it as a means of intimidating targets during daytime attacks. Uh, but other attacks didn't it did not involve the mask. And then there's the less famous but still very well known Phantom Killer, uh, a 1946 string of killings in Texarkana. This was a lovers lane attacker who wore a uh, a white mask with holes cut out for the eyes and mouth. And this was actually the basis for the horror film The Town That Dreaded Sundown. I think very loosely based. Yes, right? but, uh, but 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 that description may summon uh, you know uh, memories of that VHS tape. Uh, yeah. the, the cover for that VHS tape, which had that that killer on the front.
1: Well, when I think about movies with a white sack over the head, I obviously go to uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two before Jason took on the hockey mask.
0: That's right. That's something that uh, it's easy to forget if you're if you're not like a hardcore uh, Friday the Thirteenth fan, right? Is that he didn't get the hockey mask till which movie? The third one. The third one. Okay. Yeah. So he,
1: he, he takes it from a character. Ah, uh, a character has just got a hockey mask.
0: Oh wow. If he'd been a, a baseball umpire, we'd have a totally different franchise on our hands, wouldn't we? <laughs> that would be quite odd. Now, we've already mentioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, of course, uh, the real-life case that partially inspired uh, this movie as well as uh, the book The Silence of the Lambs, uh, the character Buffalo Bill and that, but and also Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Psycho, the character Norman Bates. The, the, the real-life case that uh, had some degree of inspiration in all of these was that of Ed Gein who lived uh, 1906 through 1984, who committed at least two murders and mutilated the bodies of corpses that he pilfered from graveyards. And two masks uh, were found in his possession that were made from the skin of two female heads. And these were found uh, in his house by police. But there's no indication, at least so far as I've seen, uh, that he ever wore these in the commission of his crimes. Wow. I mean, at least during the murders. I mean, obviously, a lot of what this guy was doing it can be considered a crime. Right. Right. Now, another case that was recommended to us by uh, Scott Benjamin, uh, who, again, is well-versed in in all of this, uh, he points out that during the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a German serial killer, uh, a man by the name of Martin Ney, who wore a black mask and black clothing and gloves in the commission of his crimes. And it sounds like it was perhaps a disguise, perhaps camouflage uh, because he committed his crimes at night, uh, but also as a means of intimidating his young victims.
1: So in the real cases of, of mask wearing we've seen here with like the Zodiac and with Martinet, it sounds like an important factor is the idea that the mask would make the victim more afraid because like the, the
0: killer is playing some kind of power game. Right. Especially important uh, or possibly important in, in that uh, Zodiac attack because, again, daylight attack against more than one victim, mm-hmm. um, a psychological advantage. Now beyond these cases we've discussed here, you really don't find a lot. Now I know some of you will find some tidbit you want to send in, and certainly feel free to send that into us if there's a case that uh that you think should be added to this uh this this pile. But uh but still for the most part there are very few masks that are utilized. Uh you look at some of these other cases, for instance, uh John Wayne Gacy famously dressed as a clown at fundraising events, parades, and children's parties, but he didn't wear the get-up as part of his crimes, and even if he had, wouldn't have been a mask. Now, there's also the case of mass shooter James Egan Holmes, who uh, wore a gas mask uh, during the 2012 Aurora shootings, but in this case, he was – uh, attempting to use tear gas canisters during his attack as well. So there seems to be a you know particular reason in that case. And beyond this, you'll find a, a few rare cases here and there of an individual uh, murder taking place committed by someone in, say, a Halloween mask. But certainly the majority of serial and mass homicides uh, seem to be unmasked acts. Now, this incongruity between fictional killers
1: and real killers makes me think that uh, that the mask must be playing some important psychological role in, the, in what horror fiction does. Because masks are not that common, it can't just be that this is inspired by the way the real events went down, right? Right,
0: and likewise, we're not we're not pointing this out to say, oh, look, horror movies are getting it wrong, man. No, you no, know? no, no, <laughs> like, no, clear. we're not saying that horror
1: movies should be more like real crimes. In fact, I I do not really want <laughs> them to be like
0: real crimes. Right, I agree with with that uh, sentiment uh, uh, very much. So. But uh, uh, so at this point, let's stop and just consider the the reasons based on these accounts. One might actually wear a mask during a murder. Um, and then we can ex- consider where these examples line up. Uh, so, to hide one's identity, to intimidate, to augment one's identity or to become someone else. Okay. Protective purposes, like the gas mask, or uh, one that doesn't really come up in any of these cases, but one could conceivably wear it, wear a mask just because it's cold outside. You know? Okay. Like I'm uh, you know, thinking a ski mask or something. And with the uh, with the Zodiac example, we seem to see an attempt at the first three, right? Uh, but identity pr- protection might well fall behind augmentation. Again, think of the uh, the Zodiac uh, symbol, but also uh, just that intimidation factor. Again, broad daylight attack on two individuals, and it's thought that he he may have uh, you know he may have wished to benefit from some sort of a, a shock uh, a feature in his attack. Mm-hmm. But he was also assuming an identity, right? I mean, yeah, because he had the, the zodiac symbol, and this seems to fall in line with the identity that he projected in his letters uh, to the media. Now let's stop to to think though about the various reasons not to wear a mask during your crimes. Uh, reasons that I can think. Uh, you know, must have presented themselves to these uh, individuals who attempted to use masks in their in their crimes. Okay. First of all, it's highly conspicuous. Uh-huh. If you're standing around a park uh, dressed in a black hood with a with a crazy symbol on your chest, uh, people are going to probably take notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it's it's going to be it's liable to limit your senses, especially your vision. You're gonna you're gonna have a hard time seeing what you're doing. It's also liable to be a bit uncomfortable, and it's a calling card, which might be desirable uh, to you, uh, but also they can certainly play against you. For instance, uh, I looked at a a rare case of uh, an individual. uh, This was a spree killer named uh, Daniel Gonzalez uh, from 2004 who committed at least one murder while wearing a hockey mask inspired by Jason Voorhees. Oh, no. But uh, the mask in this case ended up with the victim's DNA on it and was used uh, in his conviction. I think an important point uh, to keep in mind in all of this too, though, is when you look at uh, the modus operandi of so many serial and mass killers, serial killers especially often work by surprise and subterfuge. In in either case, it often makes far more sense not to look like a monster or a weirdo, but rather to look exactly like yourself or, or like a normal human at least, even if you disguise yourself slightly in some fashion. Yeah, they're probably just trying to look like anybody. Yeah, ultimately, wearing a mask is is not a careful thing to do, and being careful—that's that's that's, uh, that's part and partial to uh, organized serial killers, especially people like Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, uh, rather than, of course, uh, disorganized serial killers that are going to be more, uh, uh, you know, impulse uh, based.
1: So, what does this masking incongruity between real serial killers and the the killers of horror fiction
0: tell us? Well, I think we're on to something. Uh, First of all, with just mask traditions. Mm-hmm. Like we've long used masks to tell stories. So if we tell stories about fantastic killers uh, in our horror movies, we're going to use masks again. Like it's just too. It's just it's just such a part, a rich part of our history. But I think ultimately it has far. It has far less to do with the uh, li- with with actual serial killers and what they're doing, and far more to do with how we're processing the idea that uh, that human beings are capable of these crimes
1: yeah what we think about them what they represent in our fiction not what real murderers are actually like
0: now on that note let's take another break and when we come back uh, we're going to talk a a little bit about uh, executioners mobs high priests and uh, and of course the purge movies all right we're back now, Joe, you're a big Purge fan. I am not. I have <laughs> never seen a Purge movie. I have to admit that I have not either. Uh, but I did really enjoy the Rick and Morty episode uh, that has a Purge planet. In. <laughs>
1: Sounds like an unsustainable planet.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, the, the Purge concept for anyone who's not familiar is the whole idea that there's like one night a year where all crimes are legal. Mainly murder. That's what – the horror movie is mostly interested in. But conceivably, other crimes are also uh, legal. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how the legislation works.
1: So, yeah, you'd have to wonder why do people focus on murder when they could just focus on trying to steal as much money as possible?
0: Yeah, or ignore environmental regulations. Uh, I don't know. There, there's so many things you could do, right? I guess there's like – That's the one night of the year the company does all the polluting. <laughs> well, you they know, store it up
1: <laughs> all year and then they just dump.
0: Well, we've had four Purge movies thus far. Well, one parody Purge movie on top of that that's not related. And then there's a Purge TV show coming out. Maybe the Purge TV show will get into white collar purge crimes. Oh man, one can when uh, can only hope. But in these movies and in the the, the, the other things they've inspired, like the Rick and Morty uh, bit, you, you see this uh, idea that people are, are taken to the streets and in. And, and jumping into each other's homes, wearing masks, often really well-designed masks. Mm-hmm. They're, they're often very impressive and creative. Uh, and in Rick and Morty, they, they kind of present this idea that people have been working all year on their purge masks, you know, like they're going to a science fiction convention. Oh, it's their cosplay. Yeah. Except they're purging. Right. <laughs> but, you know, is, 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 there's the fantastic side to all of this. But, but certainly we do see masks worn by protesters, terrorists, mob uh, participants. You can be anonymous when you wear these masks and these hoods or what have you. And there's also that uh, intimidation factor. Just think of, uh, you know, groups like the Ku Klux Klan, etc. cetera. Yeah, there's the
1: idea that, that putting on a mask can bring out our, the worst of us. The worst part of humanity can escape when your identity is hidden.
0: Yeah. And this, this gets into a number of different uh, psychological effects. Some that we've talked on the, the show about, uh, for instance, in clothed cognition. Um, you know, this has come up on the podcast a couple of times. The, uh, the roles and attributes associated with a particular uniform or costume influence the self-reflection of the individual and the, the, their choices, their actions. And this can be as simple as you dress like a doctor and someone hands you a clipboard and you start feel – you feel a little smarter, a little more confident.
1: Yeah. Uh, you, you can give people a sense of authority by dressing them in a certain way. Dress people in, uh, in like a military uniform, you might be able to make them feel more powerful and aggressive and
0: authoritative. Right. Uh, it's kind of a reminder that when we dress in costumes uh, for Halloween, uh, you know, we're, we're playing with the deeper magic of, uh, of the human condition. A past episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My Halloween costume made me do it. Uh, we, we go into this a little bit, and uh, and we discuss some um, among different studies. Uh, there's one study about how masked children take more candy than unmasked children. That was a 1976 study.
1: Yeah, there are a few studies along these lines. Uh, And whether correctly or not, people have long associated masks with like impunity to do evil. Like in medieval Catholic France, there was this thing called the Feast of Fools that I was reading about. Mm -hmm. It was a feast that was celebrated by, uh, by members of the church that was originally, I think, a more liturgically grounded observance of inversions, as in Jesus saying, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Uh, But I think over time it developed into something with a reputation for mischief, like – people disguise their identities with masks, costumes, or faces covered in mud or dung. And there would be wild partying, gambling, mockery of authorities, often taking place within the church itself. So you'd go in the church and gamble and make fun of the bishop or something. Mm -hmm. It's also associated with the, quote, boy bishop tradition, where you'd take some random boy, dress him up like the bishop, and he'd get to be in charge for the day. So (laughs) you might say, you know, the old bishop smells like doo-doo, go take a bath. Um, and this this seemed to go on through the 13th and 14th centuries despite a lot of attempts by the church to eliminate it or to at least eliminate the wilder aspects of the feast and make it more pious. And apparently Pope Innocent III tried to ban masks, reasoning that it was the masking which allowed people to engage in the sinful misbehavior, uh, which they would not engage in if their faces were visible. Though of course there was another element here in that the masking often had people not just hiding their own identity but assuming another like you could put on a crusader mask or a lady-in-waiting mask or a jester mask.
0: Interesting. I'm also reminded of uh, the tradition in, in various Alpine regions uh, where you'd have uh, the Krampus costumes oh, yeah. come out uh, uh, closer to Christmas and they would go on these rampages. And that has, of course, been, a, that's been an area of concern where people would say, oh, the, Kramp- the Krampuses are getting a little out of hand. We need a crack down on the Krampuses. Yeah. They're scaring the children a little bit too much. They're getting too into it. Krampus is over the line this year. Yes, um, you know, I, I've, I've neglected to mention, of course, the um, the V for Vendetta masks, the, the Guy Fawkes masks that uh, were embraced by uh, the organization uh, Anonymous. If, I guess if, mm-hmm. kind of a loose organization, a non-centralized organization.
1: Well, do you mean the idea that – but potentially a mask can help with de-individuation where you come to believe, you know, I'm not this individual person with individual responsibilities, but I'm sort of like a, a feature of a group.
0: Right. And it's also kind of a reminder of just how disconnected the mask can become from the original thing. Like we we kind of don't think about it with uh, with Jason Voorhees. Like we don't think, oh, man, it's a movie about hockey. Right. Like we just know that's Jason's mask and likewise if you see a video uh, like a grainy uh, video uh, on YouTube and somebody's wearing the the Guy Fox mask, we don't go, "Oh, Guy Fox." Or we don't think, "Oh, V for Vendetta, that was a great Alan Moore uh, comic book. Uh, the, the graphic novel's amazing." No, we think, "Oh, it's the it's the anonymous organization."
1: Now, one thing you have to wonder is when you see people behaving badly in groups, Is it because the group provides anonymity or for some other reason associated with being in a group? Like is anonymity alone enough to get people to break social taboos? I was looking at one study on this. I don't think it looks like a particularly good study. It's a small sample size. It's kind of a strange test condition. But for what it's worth, given these caveats, uh, this was the 1970s in the Journal of Social Psychology. By Wait. G-
0: is this one by Voorhees J. et al.? No. Okay. This is by uh, Mathis and
1: Guest called Anonymity and Group Antisocial Behavior. They got 26 people, 16 men and 10 women from uh, a personality course at Western Illinois University Uh, And they tried to get them to judge how willing they would be to engage in what they called antisocial behavior. The actual reality of this was carrying a sign through the college cafeteria reading masturbation is fun um, under four conditions, which would be alone, undisguised, alone, disguised in a group undisguised and in a group disguised. And the subjects were basically – they were more willing to carry the sign. They would do it for less money if they could do it uh, – if they could do it in a group and if they could do it disguised. So both conditions seem to make people more willing to do this action that they were calling antisocial behavior. But as I've said, there's, there, I don't know. This study seems a little iffy to me.
0: I love the experiment though. <laughs> <laughs> This is
1: one of the more delightful experiments I've seen. Uh, well, they said uh, anonymity apparently they thought was an explanation for group antisocial behavior.
0: Now, there are, of course, a ton of different uh, mass traditions throughout the world, uh, a, a lot of times involving groups wearing the masks. And we can't mention all of them here. Maybe we'll come back and do, a, uh, do a, you know, an episode uh, in the future that will explore more of them. But I ran across a, an interesting one from the Philippines, though, a Catholic Holy Week tradition called Morionis Festival. And in this, you see a number of different masks uh, worn, um, people taking on various roles from, uh, you know, the, the passion of the Christ, uh, the crucifixion and so forth. Uh, but in part of it, you see masked executioners uh, chasing the figure of uh, Longinus uh, through the streets. Uh, this, of course, is the, uh, the figure that's supposed to have actually driven the spear into Christ's side. Okay. But in this uh this mask though, uh he's depicted as a cyclops. Huh. Yeah. And then when they um and, and then when they finally catch him, uh they execute him after he testifies to Christ's power.
1: Oh, this seems like a weird version it's somehow something to do in my mind with like the Minads, uh, you know, taking on their, their skins and costumes in a way disguising their identities when they behave in a frenzy as a mob.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, we should also point out that executioners have worn the masks as well to protect their identity and or to invoke some key narrative point in the proceedings, right? Uh, divine justice, the, the faceless actions of the state, etc. Uh, and sometimes these are mere hoods, but you can also uh, find examples of, of medieval masks that incorporate iron or made of iron that the executioner would wear.
1: I want to come back to this in a minute with reference to Jason Voorhees. Ooh, Okay.
0: Well, let's head back to Jason Voorhees' territory at this point. So I think a lot of what we've talked about here gives us the ammo we need to understand what's going on, sometimes intentionally but more often I think accidentally uh, in the creation of slasher films. I mean that's one of the wonderful things about about horror movies and B-movies I think is that oftentimes uh, the creators don't even realize like the, the potent symbols and uh, – And narrative elements that they're playing with.
1: Well, yeah. I mean sometimes people ask like – ask me, why do you like horror movies? Like with the implication being that horror movies are mostly bad, which I agree they are and Mm -hmm. most movies of all kinds I think are bad. Um, But they're mostly bad. They're stupid and all that. And I agree that most horror movies are bad and stupid, but they're they're very psychologically interesting and culturally interesting in a way that not all – say, bad dramas or uh, other types or bad comedies are. Horror movies, I feel like, are almost always, even when they're not very well-made narratives, they are revealing about the, the, the creatures and the cultures that made them.
0: Yeah, and, and think about this. You know, what is a widely viewed and often communally viewed slasher film but a public mask ritual? I mean it's especially easy to think about this when we attend, again, these haunted attractions that feature actors dressed up as these various masked murderer characters. You know, especially uh, uh, Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers or Leatherface. You know, something where the mask is a, is a found item essentially <laughs> mm-hmm. or it's easily acquired at the grocery store. Uh, I, I wonder if they connect with these deeper traditions. Uh, so, you know, yeah, crazy realistic uh, monster makeup. Uh, Special effects, they're cool and all, but there's something about the mask itself. You know, this is not merely a human, but a human playing a part, taking on a role and perhaps the authority of a primal force, even the authority of a divine force. Yeah, I think there's something to that. Because, you know, honestly, don't we see this in the evolution of the way we we depict Jason Voorhees' mask on VHS and DVD covers? Well, if you look at the evolution of Friday the 13th, you know, VHS box
1: art or mm-hmm. posters for the films – The first few movies just emphasize murder. Yeah. They're just like, okay, there's slaughter going on. But starting somewhere after Jason puts on the the familiar hockey mask and we get to see the hockey mask repeated, the mask becomes the focus of – the, the franchise, right? It stops being about how many people will he kill this time. It starts being about the mask and often the mask is like glowing or something.
0: Yeah, like there's some, especially on the some of the VHS covers I was looking at and the ones I remember from my childhood seeing on the shelves, there's like a there's a glowing light behind the mask, shining through the mask.
1: The holes in the hockey mask are all like they're they're like uh, Spielberg shafts of light. You know? yeah,
0: it's like it's like God is speaking to us through Jason Voorhees. Uh-huh. Like it's this. There's something to this man. I'm yeah. gonna get to
1: this in a minute.
0: And it's strange given how few supernatural elements there are in Friday the 13th, right? I mean, there are supernatural elements that present themselves. Yes, he's essentially this undead creature eventually. Yeah, in but, part
1: six, he becomes a, basically a zombie. Right,
0: um, but there's not a lot of divine supernatural elements here, uh, at least not on the surface. But then look at those VHS covers. Look at the, 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 the divine light shining or the demonic light shining through that mask. I, I think that, that also that in contemplating real-life serial killers, we, we like the idea of dehumanizing them in our fiction, because surely they don't look like everyone else. I mean, and surely, especially, they don't look like, they can't look like me. But so we have to obscure them with a mask, they're transformed by the mask. And underneath that mask, then there's surely going to be some sort of fleshly monstrosity or deformity that denotes uh, inner distortion as well. Because of course, that's the the other old trope, right? Uh, That just goes goes back uh, through most of human history that 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 Outer distortion represents inner distortion.
1: Yeah, as much as we love monsters in in fiction and myth, I mean one of the sad things about the idea of a monster, like the roots of that word, going back to the superstition that people with abnormal physical appearances reflect some kind of sinfulness or curse or monstrosity in their character –
0: yeah, so the unmasking scene where where you get to see uh, a distorted face underneath, it's kind of like, whew, thank goodness, my grotesque understanding of the world is confirmed. Right. Um, ugly people do ugly things," which is 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 ridiculous when you when you call it out like that. Yeah. But uh but I think it is that they, they are these examples are tying into that tradition. Uh, it, it's also interesting to observe that many mass traditions also seem to employ an unmasking. Uh, we saw this in some of the First Nations rituals uh, we explored in the Winter People uh, episodes, uh, what I think last year, where if, if you remove the mask and you're able to cure an individual that has been overcome by a particular ritualistic madness. Oh, yeah. And because the, the ritual mask is is a magical item and it denotes this barrier between us and the other. So I,
1: in preparing for this episode, came across a book that I thought had some really interesting insights here about Jason Voorhees specifically, but it can tell us more about the role of masks in horror in general. Um, And this is a book called Horror Zone, The Cultural Experience of Contemporary Horror Cinema, published in 2010 by I.B. Taurus, edited by a scholar named Ian Conrich. And there's a chapter on the Friday the 13th films written by Conrich himself And so he starts by drawing comparisons between the Friday the 13th series with Jason and the Hockey Mask and the tradition of the theater of the Grand Guignol in Paris, which uh, went from 1897 to 1962 and which specialized in these bloodbath dramas full of torture and mutilation and murder and gore. And there were these big fans of the Grand Guignol who'd come to the theater all the time, the guignolaires, (laughs) and uh, there was a, a, a drama scholar named Mel Gordon who did a study of the Grand Guignol that Conrich discusses. To get a sense of what this theater was like, here's a section that Conrich quotes from Gordon. There's a company manager for the theater who, quote, frequently purchased different animal eyeballs from taxidermists, not only for visual realism when characters' eyes were gouged out, but for the organ's ability to bounce when they hit the stage floor. <laughs> Now, that's some real commitment. That That's a stage drama. These little horror plays they were putting on in Paris and they wanted real realistic gore effects. And for some reason, people were eating this up. Uh, One of the interesting things to me is that Gordon says that many of these plays were short and a regular evening's program at a theater might include three gruesome horror plays and three comedies or farces and they would alternate back and forth. And this type of lineup where you'd have a gruesome horror play with gore and then a comedy or a farce and then keep going back and forth was known as hot
0: and cold showers. Well, this makes me think though of of how especially a lot of B-horror movies – You'll have that up and down right of like bad comedy and horrific violence
1: absolutely yeah that's that's what I was highlighting here mm-hmm. uh yeah th- there is a sense of of wanting to like chill you with some kind of horrific sight and then make you laugh. <laughs> Now, of course, Connor says that the Friday the 13th films are comparable to Grand Guignol productions in their emphasis on slaughter and the the illusions used to create the appearance of gore. So Sean Cunningham, the director of the first Friday the 13th movie, discusses how the makeup effects created by Tom Savini for the movie were so good and so convincing that he would be tempted to keep the scene running and show much more explicit gore than would normally be warranted by good filmmaking. (laughs) Um, Just because they had put so much work into the blood and gore effects and they looked so realistic and so good, which I'd never read that before, but that makes a lot of sense to me. Like the turn toward an emphasis on blood and gore in these slasher movies basically just being a product of the fact that their makeup effects people were so good.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I think back to some of the terrible horror movies I've seen where, like, where they just do not know to cut away from the gore effect. Because the first – like for a second, the gore effect is highly effective. Mm -hmm. And then you start staring at it a little bit longer and you begin to see the – the the cracks in the facade.
1: Well, it's kind of like you know a movie that's got a fancy car in it, and there are a lot of scenes with that car because it's like the filmmakers. Well, we paid to lease this car, you know. We might as well yeah. get a lot out of it. It's like once you've sunk enough costs in to get a really good thing, you're tempted to just overindulge in it because of the sunk costs.
0: Yeah, if if you you're not having to worry about using Nicolas Cage for just one hour of filmmaking, if you've got if you got <laughs> him for the full week. You just let him go crazy. Right. Uh, But so getting back to the mask, Conridge has these thoughts on the
1: role of Jason's mask. And some of it has to do with Jason functioning very much like, as you mentioned earlier, an executioner and playing the same cultural role as one. In writing on Grand Guignol, Gordon writes that these theater performances, the the gory ones on stage – Quote, traded on sensationalistic plots and the exploitation of their audience's visceral curiosity in a way, they acted as fantasy substitutes for the guillotine and its public executions. Now, that's interesting because so public executions with large audiences used to be a regular feature of public life in many societies, especially, you know, societies in Europe where they've more recently been phased out either through abolition of the death penalty or through massive reduction and how often it's applied through changing the venue to make them private instead of public. Uh, there's clearly something that drove huge crowds out to see the workings of the guillotine or the Halifax gibbet or the gallows, the burning at the stake, the breaking on the wheel. And when you couldn't go out and see that kind of stuff anymore, did whatever drove people to attend those things disappear? I, I would say probably not,
0: right? Yeah. There's still going to be this hunger but how are you going to uh, appease it? So Conrich
1: writes, quote, Like Halloween's Michael Myers and the Texas Chainsaw Masker's Leatherface, the executioner's mask establishes a cold, mechanical, and faceless killer devoid of personality. The mask also adds the detachment that the executioner, the professional killer, requires in order to function unhindered. Jason's hockey mask is so much part of his identity, his one essential accessory, that without it he is incomplete and maybe even unable to function convincingly. as the executioner. ah, And so uh, author Elias Canetti, who wrote a book called Crowds and Power, wrote that the power of the mask lies in the fact that it is, unlike a human face, rigid. Quote, what gives the mask its interdictory quality is the fact that it never changes. Everything behind the mask is mysterious. Above all, it separates. And of course, interdictory here means enforcing a prohibition, right? The executioner, the embodiment of the harshest end of the law and of justice is masked in order to be made without a human face because human faces, even, even mean human faces, can convey uncertainty, individuality, vulnerability, even maybe sympathy. And the inscrutable mask sort of leaves the victim feeling baffled and subservient, being put to death by a force beyond human appeal. So this makes me think about what's going on with this big face reveal that happens so often toward the end of these movies. You know, like when Jason's mask gets knocked off and you get to see his face. Conrich thinks that these reveals are designed to show always that uh, the the killer is not just a normal human wearing the mask but some sort of aberration, more an it than a he. And I think if this interpretation is correct, it's sort of as if – you saw the executioner raise his mask to you and where you expected to see a human face that might show you an expression of pity. Instead, what you get is something just as monstrous and inhuman underneath the mask. It's almost like taking the mask off and showing you Jason's monster face is letting you know that there is no appeal. There's no chance that he's going to change his mind about this.
0: Has anyone ever made a slasher film where there is just like... A black hole underneath the mask. I think that would be a nice psychedelic twist on it. Well, it's just a co-
1: complete void and no just, face at just all. Just
0: absolute darkness. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting.
1: I've definitely never seen it.
0: Look at look at us. We're just giving away wonderful slasher movie ideas in this
1: episode. Uh, so Conrich quotes a scholar named Bernard Velt, who has written that since Jason wears a hockey mask, I think this is a pretty terrible take. He is an angry god, quote, playing a sport or a game with human life. But Conrich, I think, does not agree with this take and I don't agree with this take either. Uh, instead, he, he points out that the movies emphasize Jason not as a game player but as an efficient, skilled professional, sort of rapidly and systematically dispatching his victims one after another with no particular indication that he's playing games or getting any personal sense of enjoyment out of it. And I would say, in other words, this means he's behaving like a medieval headsman with a full schedule of executions lined up for the day. And I think this is correct. This is how Jason is portrayed in the Friday the Thirteenth movies. He is efficient and systematic and businesslike. He—it's like watching someone do their job.
0: Yeah, and this is—I think this is one of the reasons why for so long everyone was like, "Oh, when's he going to fight Freddy?" Because Freddy was—is the complete opposite of that. Like right. Freddy he's enjoys, sadistic, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Freddie is is a sadist and, uh, and Jason is a pro.
1: And personally, I think this Jason as professional executioner model is highly salient as to what role these films are playing culturally and why they are what they are and what role the mask plays. Um, think about the way that in movies like this, the murders generally don't come as a surprise – you know rather there there is sort of a series of repeated cues that a character is about to meet the axe, yes, uh the character gets isolated from the others. there are music and film pacing cues to let you know that a murder is coming. There are certain cliches and tropes that are invoked. Is anybody there? And then it happens and it strikes me as very much like sort of having the next condemned prisoner being brought up to the executioner's block and allowed a prayer or final words or whatever in this repeated and predictable pattern. Here's another parallel. How often the murders in slasher movies can feel like punishments for particular sins, taboo violations or just general character flaws that the victims have prominently displayed in the scenes right beforehand.
0: Oh yes this is a this is a classic uh part of the the whole genre right you have a camp full of horrible kids and you're going to have to get through all of those before you get to that uh, that final girl who actually has virtue,
1: right? The one the one who's the innocent, who's undeserving of the punishment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there's something that Conrich is really onto here. I think the model of Jason as a sort of executioner of European history, the the sovereign's representative. There's something to that, and of course, as we mentioned a minute ago, the mask really helps with the executioner persona. I think it's highly possible that a major role played by films like the Friday the 13th films is they're tapping into something that was lost when public executions went away. This desire people had to see some kind of disembodied arm of justice enacting systematic violence
0: against people who break taboos. You know, this this makes me think of Paris Hilton. Um, I don't know if you remember, there was a, a horror movie that came out, uh, House of Wax, I believe, itself a remake of past wax movies, just like a legacy of, you know, the, the, the wax-based horror movies. But it was a pretty big deal at the time because Paris Hilton was at, like, kind of peak uh, fame slash infamy. Um, and she has a role in the film, and she is killed by the uh, the unknown murderer. And you can kind of see that as like this weird, and I and, and kind of I have to say unsettling, like the public desire for the fictional executioner to take care of Paris Hilton, yeah. for the for the population.
1: People, yeah, the movie was advertised. Wait, did you already just say that the movie was advertised as "Come watch Paris die"?
0: Basically, yeah, that was basically the tagline. No, they, that li- was the they actual they liter- oh, I goodness. don't know if that
1: was the actual tagline, <laughs> but things and there were things advertising the movie that said that. And I mean, that's like on one hand, you could see, you know, I'm not saying I'm a big fan of Paris Hilton or anything, but there is something kind of like nasty, maybe somewhat misogynistic about that. Yeah. Just like taking some prominent, maybe rich, annoying female celebrity and saying, now you all get to see what it looks like if she gets murdered.
0: But this does make me think there's a possibility for for, for this, for the future. Again, here's another free idea for everyone out there. Uh, it's essentially Celebrity Big Brother but uh but you have Jason Voorhees uh on hand to dispatch fictionally of course to dispatch everybody in the Big brother house, and that's every season like whoever the most uh uh you know um but, uh, reviled uh, celebrities are to a given um a given season then those are the ones that are brought on the show
1: that's sort of what these movies are though
0: yeah, but I wonder if it gets maybe it gets some of that public distaste out of their system too it's almost like a it's like a mock. Execution, you know, it's almost like uh, uh, a parody uh, taking place. You know, mm-hmm. and like maybe thanks to House of Wax, people were able to to say, "Okay, we're all right with Paris now. She's paid for her crimes. We can move on." We saw her die in that horror movie.
1: Well, I don't remember who the killer was in that movie, or if a mask was involved, but I do think. That, that it's correct that the mask is an important part of establishing this uh, this like disembodied enactment of justice, executioner, arm of the law kind of punishment.
0: Well, it's worth noting that in, in many of these slasher films, there may not be an actual mask, but thanks to the way it is shot, the, the killer remains faceless. Right. I'm thinking, of course, about the various Dario Argento films where you just see hands enacting crimes or uh there's one segment in the original VHS um, anthology film that came out where the, the 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 killer in the woods their their face is always covered by VHS uh, tracking errors. Oh yeah, I remember that one. Which uh, can be interpreted as is essentially a kind of mask. It's like the medium itself
1: coming for you. Yeah. No, another thing I want to say is that all this stuff I've been saying about the Friday the 13th movies, it doesn't apply equally across all movies with masked killers. I would say a, a counterexample would be better movies, generally better movies that have more likable characters where you're like invested in their survival and their their peril raises your stress. You're sort of where you're with the characters. You know? Right. It, A bad thing about the Friday the 13th movies is you're just generally not with the characters. You're not worried about whether they're going to make it or not. And that's been a long criticism of the Friday the 13th movies is that there's something kind of nasty at the core of them where you're not hoping the characters survive. You're just waiting to see which one of them gets killed next and how. Uh, Again, making it more kind of like going to a public execution.
0: Yeah, the the characters without masks are kind of – to a certain extent, as inhuman as the character in the mask. I wonder how the mask
1: functions differently in horror, where you genuinely do like the characters, you want them to survive, and you're you're trying to see how they will get through it.
0: Well, then you're begging for them to uh, to unmask the villain, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of like the the idea is like the law is oppressive and horrible until it goes after the people uh, that do not deserve its uh, its wrath. Uh, when it becomes unjust and then we want to see its uh, uh, its secrets uncovered. Then we want to see the executioner's mask ripped from its face.
1: Yeah, Maybe that's what's going on in the scene. I, I'm sure you remember this, Robert. There's a scene that has never much made sense to me <laughs> in the original Halloween okay. where Michael Myers' mask comes off brief, briefly and you see his face. And it, then he just p- sort of puts the mask back on. The face reveal doesn't really show anything. It's just a guy. It's just uh-huh. a guy in his face. Uh, and I've never understood why that's in the movie. Maybe it's it's a brief moment of victory because in Halloween, it's not quite the same. You're, you're very much with Jamie Lee Curtis. Like, yeah. you know, you, you want her to get through this. You don't want to see her punished or anything.
0: Yeah, that is a weird moment. Like, that's one that I I legitimately had forgotten that that was a part of the original Halloween.
1: It's always a surprising moment, and I'm not sure what it means. One quick side note I couldn't uh, finish this episode without mentioning is I remembered a story. Our colleague Ben Bolin, one of the hosts of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know and Ridiculous History, uh, he he told uh he told a group of us one time in the office that he got pulled over for driving with a werewolf mask on. <laughs> and I asked him, "Is that true?" And he said, "Yes, it is true. He was wearing a werewolf mask, driving a car that was in Georgia. Uh, he wasn't given a ticket, but the uh, the the cop who pulled him over told him he could not drive with a mask on. And he did. He still doesn't know quite why that is. Ah." He'd also, he said he'd driven with a Batman mask on before and never gotten pulled over for that, but did get pulled over for the werewolf
0: mask. Interesting. Well, I mean, I'm imagining there's less uh, visibility with the werewolf mask. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to leave it off there. I uh, had a lot of fun here today talking about slasher movies, mass traditions, and really just kind of. Trying to dive deep into something that's very easy to take for granted and just dismiss as just some silly aspect of our silly horror movies but uh, I think it's anything but
1: as usual,
0: even our silliest horror movies tell us something about ourselves. All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is The Mothership. That's where you'll find all of the episodes, including this October's uh, Halloween offerings, as well as past uh, Halloween offerings from the past. You'll find a store tab that you can click on uh, where you can check out all sorts of cool merchandise that has our logo on it. It's a great way to support the show. And if you want to support the show without spending a dime, a great way to do it is to rate and review Stuff to Blow Your Mind wherever you have the power to do so
1: big thanks as always to our wonderful audio producers alex williams and tari harrison if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other with uh, suggestions for future topics or just to say hi let us know uh, how you found out about the show how long you've been listening where you listen from you can email us at blow at